Throughout this podcast, we've been looking at items in the collection, but now let's take an opportunity to look at new items, future items. We'll be discussing several works that have been newly acquired or are yet to be added to the ever-growing University Research Archive, and they will be inside the collection. Hello, and welcome to the Collection Podcast. My name is Chloe Midgalchi, and I'm really excited to share this week's episode, which is Future Collections. If you've been listening to the podcast, you've probably caught on that most of the objects we've discussed are particularly old, some older than the college itself. But today we're going to switch gears and talk about contemporary items, items that have been newly acquired or are in the process of being acquired into the university's research collection. To put it quite plainly, we've got new stuff. One ever-growing collection is the university's art collection, and at the helm of these new acquisitions is curator of the university art collection and deputy head of museums, Neil Leviter. I started by asking him the big question, how do you add new items? How do you go about acquiring new works, Mm -hmm. especially in a collection that is probably majority older antiquity archived things um and then what in the process of collecting do you hope the collection will become so that's been so since i've been at the university since 2012 that's been the biggest question that um we've had to take on uh so yeah you're right that the majority of the university art collection is um 16th 17th century Uh, and 19th, 20th century Scottish art and some really great strengths within that. There is, well, really before my coming here, very little in terms of uh, contemporary art. I decided that, particularly now that the university has an art school, it has an existing and very long-standing history of art department, um, that the art collection needs to be a lot more than it currently is. And its strengths are there, its strengths will remain there, um, but we need to build a new strength in contemporary art to reflect what the university is now um, and also to support teaching and research. Also, um, there's a bit of a, it's quite an interesting time in well, in British collections generally because local government um, funding is reduced to such an extent that many museums no longer have acquisitions budgets. So university museums, I believe, have an obligation to step in when other cultural heritage of all types is not being collected to the same extent that it was. We need to do that more in order, because these collections are not just for the university, they're for everyone. Um, So we need to represent that much, much better than has been in the past. So... um, I created two new parts of the art collection, um, so the Modern and Contemporary Art Collection and the Contemporary Art Research Collection. So they are deliberately put in there so that we just have more contemporary art in the university. Still, one of the most important things about building a collection like that and um, yeah, the policy around it is that it it retains focus. Keeping focus in mind, where does Neil find new works and how does he choose? The worst thing that could happen is that the collection becomes what Neil likes. So the stuff that Neil likes and I just go shopping and buy stuff. 
it needs to reflect either what the university does or the creative output of the university in one way or another. So the modern and contemporary art collection is limited to um, so works from the Grisho, so that's our kind of staple. Every year we buy um, around half, sorry, a dozen um, pieces from the Edinburgh College of Art to Grisho. We also collect artists who have either exhibited or studied at the university or work at the university, so it's all linked to the university in one way or another, or have exhibited at the Talbot Rice Gallery. The contemporary art research collection is a completely different thing altogether. That's the first time that we're collecting around subject, so it's linked to academic research and teaching. Um, that is the most different way of collecting that the university ever has in terms of its art collection. It's a complete shift um, and a lot of challenging work, a lot of work that is difficult to collect physically um, and I just see it as we are better placed than most institutions to collect that type of work that is risky, um, that perhaps might cost more to store or exhibit or something. Um, yeah, we need to do that. Speaking to difficulties, do you find that um, acquiring contemporary works is a little bit harder because there might be some artists that still want to exhibit them instead of, um, I mean, realistically they can still be exhibited through the collection. Mm -hmm. um, they can also be loaned as well, so right. that's um, quite a big thing that we do with the collection and really fulfills that remit of the collection being for everyone. Um, so we loan works all over the world. So that goes for new contemporary collections as well. That would that would be subject to exhibition loan just like everything else. And we really do promote that. We say we're very positive to receiving loan requests. It's a good way for getting the collection known as well. It just gets it out there and seen by much, much bigger uh, groups of people. So yeah, and we would, um, the last thing we want to do is just collect stuff and then store it and hide it away forever. That's yeah, not what we want to do with the collection. Obviously, the million-dollar question here is, well, what are the new works? Things that are really unusual really appeal to me. So I tend to go for things that really kind of catch your, that slightly child, childlike wonder, like how is that done or how can that be possible? Like that's often one of the, the first things that draws me into something. So Katie Patterson, uh, we collected two works of hers last year and she graduated from Edinburgh College of Art about 10 years ago and she's becoming very, very highly regarded. So we um, collected a piece called Time Pieces, which is currently on display in Edinburgh College of Art. So that is a series of nine clocks that tell the time um, on the planets of our solar system, including the moon. And that was exhibited as part of the Edinburgh Art Festival in 2014. Um, and Katie was not really otherwise represented in the collection, a very high profile artist that graduated from ECA. So in terms of the modern contemporary art collection is perfect, that's someone we needed to have. There's a real uh, clear art science um, link in her work as well, which you know reflects the university, a very um, highly regarded for life sciences, now has um, an art school within it, so it ticks a lot of boxes. As Neil stressed earlier, these works are also meant to be interactive and used as teaching tools within the university. The time on the clocks are accurate to within five decimal points, and to remain accurate, they must be calibrated once every year. 
The clocks were first installed in 2015 during Freshers' Week by 18 new students, and the intent is to ceremoniously recalibrate these clocks every year as part of Welcome Week. Katie Patterson happened to donate another work entitled Future Library. So Future Library is um, it's quite difficult to describe <laughs> because it's so unusual. So Katie was uh, gifted a forest by Oslo, which is the first thing. And then you say that to people and they're like, what? What does that even mean? <laughs> but she was gifted a forest where trees have been planted um, and a, an author will be commissioned every year until 2114 to write a book. Katie's first two authors are, and this is pretty mind-blowing, Margaret Atwood and David Mitchell. No one will read that book other than the author. It will then be locked away uh, in a vault, which you can visit, um, which will be in Oslo as well. So they'll be kind of viewable, but you won't be able to read the material. In 2114, the uh, trees will be cut down, the books will be printed, and then um, the university and other institutions will receive future library in 100 years, or 99 years, 98 years now. Um, so in the meantime, you get this certificate. So the work, Future Library, is not the work that's hanging in the research suite up here. The work that is hanging in the research suite is a print made by Katie, which looks like the cross-section of a tree trunk, exhibiting 100 rings to mark 100 years, beginning at the center with 2014. It's a forest currently. The work does not currently exist. So that's definitely the most unusual thing that we have collected since uh, building this contemporary art collection because it's not here and we'll all be dead by the time it comes. And that's the thing that makes the work really interesting is that she deliberately chose a hundred years because it's just out of reach. We'll, we'll, all of us will just not make it. Um, so the notion of time, so a hundred years may as well be a million to us because we're still not going to see it. Um, and when she was working with the, um, the Forestry Commission, um, who are kind of managing this uh, project, 100 years is nothing. In the life of a forest, it's the blink of an eye. So she was talking to them about what she thought was this really unusual project, and the, the forestry guys are like, whatever, 100 years <laughs> is nothing. Like, they work in 500 years, 600 years. So it's just that different kind of perspectives on time makes it really interesting. Future Libraries is quite literally the definition of a future collection, and in 98 years' time, 100 books will arrive to the University of Edinburgh. In the meantime, there is a more immediate acquisition, which are three eraser drawings by Jonathan Owen. Very recent acquisition, which we don't actually even have yet, uh, which we got last week, uh, is by an artist called Jonathan Owen, and again is slightly kind of book-related. Uh, so Jonathan is a sculptor, um, but he takes these book plates and erases figures from them. And these are, again, just in that sense of you look at it and you think, what? Like, I just don't understand what has happened here. So he adds nothing. He only uses a normal eraser um, and removes figures by basically create. He turns them into the background. So he shades it to the extent that they vanish into the background of the picture. It's just mind-blowing. You look at them and these kind of ghostly figures remain, uh, but everything is largely vanished. I legitimately can't even fathom how he does it. Someone explained it to me in a lot of detail, and I think I get it now. Um, so it's not about uh, the figures aren't actually gone, but they're like, so if I was standing against that picture, you would basically paint the remaining picture from me 
so it would be kind of shaded to right. the extent that you would just kind of turn into the background. Even knowing that, still, still totally mind-boggling, and how long that must take to do. Um, and it's a really interesting thing about process as well, um, because John could do that on Photoshop in five minutes, but so much of it for him is just, and that that is one of the things that makes the work all the more satisfying because you know that he's sat over it for hours and hours and hours and done this. And it's the slight imperfections that come through in it that make it, it gives it a, a strange texture. You know something should have been there. Um, you see like a little ghost hand. Yeah. And, yeah. So which digitally you just wouldn't get that to the same extent. It wouldn't be as satisfying. Um, so that we were um, we acquired that last week again. So linked to the college, and we will use that work in teaching. And yeah, so it's it has to have a use. That's the thing as well. We don't just collect stuff for the sake of it. It has to be either academically useful. We use it in an exhibition or something. It doesn't just go in the store. All of these exciting works will become part of the university, which makes this particular collection so unique. Whereas most art collections are meant to be displayed, often for short periods of time, the university's art collection is meant to be educational and interactive. A new and exciting acquisition is being made to the Lothian Health Services Archive. As explained last week, the LHSA is mainly comprised of medical documents, so this new edition is really special. Here to explain is archivist Louise Williams. Recently, I've been working to try and collect more oral histories from people in Edinburgh who've worked around um, HIV prevention over the years. This is mainly because um, Lothian Health Services Archive has some unrivaled paper and object collections around the history of HIV in Edinburgh and this was unique because in Edinburgh in the early 80s and going on to the mid 80s um, we had a very high rate of HIV infection and this was mostly because of the way HIV was transmitted from person to person which was through intravenous drug use because the area had a very very high rate of intravenous drug use and this was reflected in um, sharing needles and high infection figures. So compared to other areas of the country, we had um, a unique um, problem on our hands with HIV threatening to become an uncontrollable epidemic. And what happened in our region was that health workers, council workers, charities, voluntary groups came together in what we'd now call a multi-agency approach to try and um, find solutions to stop HIV from spreading so quickly and to educate more people about how HIV could spread and how they could keep themselves safe. Not only are these oral histories unique, but they help to illustrate how impactful Edinburgh was in HIV prevention and education. How HIV was handled um, and in Edinburgh was so was so unique, it was so groundbreaking. Um, initiatives that we started here went on to become normal national approaches um, throughout Scotland and because of that I wanted to talk to people who'd worked in HIV prevention. So whose oral histories will Louise collect? Firstly people who've worked inside what was then Lothian House Board which was now NHS Lothian to basically um, get their memories about um, 
what it was like to work within the field from how HIV was first discovered, from talking to the person who first prescribed methadone in the city to try and reduce needle sharing, for example, um, to people who'd worked in um, paediatric care um, because obviously children were being born with the virus. There's a high number of um, children who are born with, with HIV and some appro- unique approaches were needed for the people who were caring um, you know, for those children and to support their families. And the second group of people um, work in a charity, um, an HIV and hepatitis C support charity called Waverly Care here in the city. And they were involved in setting up the first hospice um, for um, AIDS patients in the late 80s called Milestone House. And they're still working today with people who who are affected by HIV and AIDS and hepatitis C and the people around them. And many of those people have worked from the early days, from the 1980s until now. And so I'd also like to talk to them about how their support role has changed and also to to some of their clients um, who've directly um, experienced services in the city and what it's like to live with HIV then and now. I asked Louise why she was interested in adding oral histories to what is normally a paper archive. I want to do oral histories because so many of the histories that we have are from an institutional perspective and not from an individual perspective. And although we're talking to staff as well, who've worked inside the health service and we're also talking to people who might have used that service, I think it's important to get these more kind of informal voices firsthand because what's reflected in our paper collections may not be the whole story and may not reflect people's thoughts, people's feelings. And I think it's important that that kind of aspect is added to... um, to histories um, as we see them and as we remember them and also because we don't always have access to the people who create our archives and I think it's important to grab that chance while we can and to talk to people who want to be talked to. I mean I was quite surprised I was I had a meeting for people just from Lothian Health Board um, who might be interested in talking to me I expected that there'd be one or two people and there were over 30. People who wanted to talk about their work in the field just because the way that they'd worked together with different agencies between the, you know, the council, the house board, the police hadn't happened before and it hasn't happened since. And that's still a defining part of their career. And people work with HIV um, because they wanted to. People worked in this field because they wanted to, because it was new, because they wanted to um, help find find a way out and to understand the virus and to support people living with the virus and it's also giving giving a chance for that story to be heard as louise points out many medical archives come from an institutional perspective and these oral histories are unique in that they provide a personal first-hand human perspective of a medical history on a larger whole these oral histories are unique to any archive Archives often document stories through objects, but as Louise put so eloquently, we very seldom get the thoughts and feelings of people involved in that history, and that's so important. 
Furthermore, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to collect these personal histories. Because these collections are so recent, what we also have is quite a number of people who, are, who have retired by now, who may be still in the final stages of their careers, who worked during the 80s, during the 90s, during the height of these initiatives and campaigns to try and reduce the rate of HIV infection. And I wanted to talk to them before I can't get in touch with them anymore. So many things, events, objects, people, are so fleeting and so quickly do things become history. These oral histories will soon become accounts of a distant past. And I think it's so special that because they are a contemporary acquisition, we are able to capture these memories. So often when we look at an archive, we have to dig into the past and glean stories from the items in it. But these oral histories are remarkable in that now we are actually collecting the stories. The University of Edinburgh's research collection is a living, breathing thing. It's ever-growing, ever-changing, and ever-interactive. Whether it be old or new, historical or contemporary, once an item becomes part of the university's collection, it transforms from a mere object to a tool for research, storytelling, education, and inspiration. You can see Katie Patterson's timepieces hanging above the main staircase of the Edinburgh College of Art. Katie Patterson's future libraries print is currently hanging in the research suite of the CRC, located on the sixth floor of the main library. Follow the progress of future libraries and which authors get commissioned at katiepatterson.org slash future library. That is Katie with an IE and Patterson with one T. Jonathan Owen's eraser drawings are currently being framed and have yet to make it to the university. When they do, they will likely also be displayed in the CRC on the sixth floor and will be part of the Art Collection's Thing of the Month talk. Last, you will be able to request the HIV oral histories through the Lothian Health Services Archive at their website at lhsa.lib.ed.ac.uk. Images of the specific items from this episode, as well as previous episodes, are available at uoeartandarchives.tumblr.com. The podcast is also provided on the blog, so you can listen and follow along with the images. The Collection Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by Chloe McGulchy. Executive producer is Neil Lebeter. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk. My name is Chloe McGulchy, and as always, thank you for stopping by the collection.